Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? I love it. That was positive, Mike. Well done. Uh, If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great to have you with us today as we kind of start to come towards the conclusion of this series. But but before we go to this, uh, can I ask a question? How many of you guys had a good Thursday into Thursday night and then Friday? Anyone? Some people out there. There was there was some some interesting weather, right? I, I texted my parents and said, I think I think the weather systems of the UK and Colorado have somehow kind of fluxed, uh, and you've got our weather and we've got your weather because it just. It rained a lot, and I was leaving for work on Thursday morning, and being someone who likes to you know, do the due diligence, never want to avoid difficult jobs, I climbed up on the roof because uh, the downpipe seemed to be you know, kind of doing some funky things, and so I, I was there getting soaking wet. There was this moment where I realized I don't own a single waterproof jacket, because who needs them in Colorado? Uh, and, and, and started to clear the pipes, um, and then thought I'd check the egress windows of the basement, Uh, And so I went downstairs, and this is what greeted me. (laughs) Okay, it wasn't quite like that. There wasn't an actual turtle, Um, but but there was probably other marine life. Uh, And and it was filling up fast, and you had that experience of like, if I just opened the window, everything would just kind of come gushing this way. And and, and so I went to work, and this this was me, like midway through the day. That's not a leech on my head, although it's appropriate, it's a leaf, um, and, and fortunately with the, the help of Bill Wiseman was able to sort everything out, but there was this beautiful moment where I'm absolutely soaked through and getting pretty cold uh, and we're trying to fix one of the downpipes so it takes the water away from the house and I come up with this suggestion, I can't even remember what it was, and, and Bill looks at me and he says, so right now you've got what's called like wet cold guy amnesia, none of your ideas are good, like, just let me think of the ideas from the safety of my waterproof jacket and you just you just act and and we did and it worked out well so i used to have this 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 saying that colorado is a state where you don't need a sump pump uh, until you do Um, and now my saying is colorado is a state where you don't need multiple sump pumps until you do and that day was thursday morning but we got through it together but if you can handle like the the stiff segue to the sermon topic, it was this poignant reminder, right, of, of seasonality, of, of knowing the seasons. Jesus even says this to some of his followers. He says, you know, or you're very good at predicting the weather seasons. Uh, you're less good at predicting the spiritual seasons. You know when it's going to rain, and you know when to plant, and you know when to harvest. Like, pay attention to the spiritual realm. And we might say the same in the context of our series on uh, relationships, the, the seasons of relationship. What we've said so far is this, there is a me. There's the person you were born as. And, and now that changes and it flux over time. But, but if you were to ask your parents, they, they would tell you that some of the core of you was there at birth. Yes, there's, there's, there's environment, but some of it is hereditary. And if you've got multiple kids, you would know some of the, sometimes they're just different. 
and they're just born a particular way. There's a particular element to them. And so you were who you were from birth with all of your idiosyncrasies and, and some of your good things and some of your other things. And then somewhere, if you're married, you met a you. And maybe you're not married yet. Maybe you hope to be. Maybe you're in that single phase. But, but somewhere, for a lot of us, we met this you we invited this other person into relationship and were invited in turn and we received their good and their bad and, and, and this is what is produced. There's this between you and me part, the Venn diagram, the, the, the figuring out of relationship. About 3,000 years ago, a writer of a book called Ecclesiastes said this, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. But between those two things, an awful lot happens, right? Relationships change. They come and they go. They go through different seasons. Someone once said that, that life is two dates with a dash in between, and an awful lot happens in that dash. It sums up everything about your life. There is a season for everything. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. So with all of that flux going on, it might be no surprise that we've said repeatedly relationships are hard work. And, and I would suggest, not in its entirety, but partially, relationships are hard work because life is constantly changing. You are becoming a different person. And if you've got married, you know that you met someone who felt like a stranger and you got to know them and then you got married to them and they were a stranger all over again because now you're living with them and then they change as kids come on the scene. If you've had kids, there's all of this different movement going on. No wonder relationships are hard when it's not necessarily true that there's like a concrete, firm foundation. It's kind of this moving thing that's going, uh, and you're kind of adapting to it. Sometimes I think relationships in our mind look like this. I drew this. I'm good at drawing. Um, I drew this. <laughs> the, the, there's, there's maybe in our mind compartments for all of these different relationships. There's the guard compartment, the spouse compartment, work, friends, kids, Something that looks like it could be acquaintances, church, family. There's all of these different things that we think of in our mind as our different relationships. But, but is that how it's designed to be? Or is the better, a better way to picture relationships in our mind? So, so before we get into where we're going, let's make sure we've got this kind of, we're all on the same page from the beginning. Now, before we go there, usually we don't talk much about Mother's Day on Mother's Day, there's a couple of reasons for that. It's not a liturgical holiday, so it's not in the, the church calendar that we kind of stick to. Now, now, that's not something that we can't break from, but there's a second reason that we don't really talk about Mother's Day a lot in church. Same as the reason we don't talk about Father's Day. We know that for some of you, you come in and Mother's Day is a wonderful day to celebrate. You felt loved and you felt honored, and I, and I love that. And then for some people, you come in and Mother's Day is a painful thing. For some of you, Mother's Day is a day where you remember, remember loss. There might be a death of a mother. Some of you, Mother's Day is lost because you remember the death of a child. For some of you, there's a, there's a break in that relationship and you haven't talked to your mother or your kids for a while. And, and so we just recognize that if Mother's Day is great for you, it's going to be great anyway. 
You're going to go out from here, you might go out to brunch, you'll be celebrated and all of those different things. And if you're here and it's not great, then, then we don't want to spend all our time talking about that part of your life. But this year, it just so happens that a conversation around parenting lands exactly where we are in this series. So we're going to embrace that tension just a little bit more today. So back to the beginning literally the beginning, this book, Genesis. Let's kind of wrestle with the core of relationships for a second. Genesis chapter one, verse 11 and 12. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants, seed-bearing seed according to their kinds, and seed-bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was very good. Just note for a second, God speaks to the land, and the land produces trees. And not only trees, it produces trees that produce more trees. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, God speaks to the land, and it produces trees. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, God makes trees. And by doing that, to do that, he speaks to the land, and the land produces trees. And just ask yourself for a second, what happens if you take a tree from the land? Dies. God speaks to the land, the land produces trees, and if you take a tree from the land, it dies. In verse 26, God speaks to himself, and he makes man. God speaks to himself, and he makes man, and if you take man out of God, what happens? He dies. From the earliest part of Genesis, that seems to be the truth about human beings. There is some kind of attachment to God that says, no, you can't exist without being in him. That is where life comes from. The core of all relationships seem to be locked in this center piece. I told you I was good at drawing. Here it is. There's this center, this core. There is God in the middle. That seems to be the argument of Genesis, that we are made to be in relationship with God, and that is central. And then in chapter 2, we see this. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Three things really quick from this. When God plans to make woman, he calls her Ezer. He calls her something that could be translated deliverer, but certainly this highly honored partner in creation. And then when he presents her to Adam, to man, she says... She was taken out of man. But there too there's this beautiful synergy because while this woman in the Genesis story was taken out of man, every man in the future will be taken out of woman. And there's this connection between the two. And then finally, this part is fascinating. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. 
there can be no union, there can be no marriage unless there's a leaving. And that can be challenging. I remember this moment where I'd been dating Laura over the Atlantic and I'd visited a couple of times and my mom had always been okay with that. And then she said there was this moment where you went for the marriage, for the ceremony. And I watched as you backed out the driveway and then you drove off and I burst into tears because there was this realization that you didn't belong to me anymore. You'd left me to join Laura. And so there's this idea there that's in Genesis, that there's this union that is distinct, that there's no other marriage, no other relationship of which the Bible says you are one flesh. Just this one. This one is particular. This one is different. And then we're left with this conundrum of Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's a union between the two that is not shame Based. So you have this central core that seems to be God, and then there's this next circle in these concentric circles that is, that is a spouse. Uh, the Bible has been accused at times of being fairly unromantic. It, it has particular views of marriage. We'll unpack those just a little bit. There's, there's probably nothing quite Elizabeth Browning-esque, like, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life, and if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. This is like 18th century romantic poetry at its best. And the Bible isn't 18th century romantic poetry, but it does touch some of those notes of just how important romantic love is and this deep passion and connection that might go along with it. This is the book Song of Songs, a book that is both based on human beings and their interaction with each other and is somewhat allegorical of God's relationship with the church. It's read every Passover in the Jewish tradition. In verse 1, verse 2, it says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out in Chapter 4, verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Wow. It's a bold statement. Song of Solomon, verse, Song of Songs, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It, it, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. There is this picture of deep passion, one for the other, that is there in some of the ways that the Bible talks about this union of marriage. And then there are times where well, the view is at least complicated, that wrestles with the difference between love and affection and, and then pragmatism and, and wrestles with how children interfere with all that. In the story of Jacob, he meets a girl called Rachel that he falls deeply in love with. He's due to get married to her. He's worked seven years for the right to marry her. And on the wedding night, his uncle Laban switches the two that are due to get married. He switches Rachel for her sister, Leah. And this is some of the fallout that we see there, some of the pain, some of the emotion behind marriage. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. There's a transactionalness to it. 
that we're probably deeply uncomfortable with in the 21st century. And then it becomes even more problematic when we read what happens when Rachel isn't able to have children. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. The Bible doesn't shy away. The biblical writers don't shy away from some of the conundrums that are involved in marriage and love and pragmatism, and the need in this culture for a woman to have support, and the having of children, and all of those different elements. And yet at its core, that relationship we talked about, that relationship that comes in the circle after the relationship with God, it has this note of passion, one for the other to it. Uh, This is the word used in that first verse we looked at when it says that a man will leave his, uh, his mother and cling to his wife, it's this word depak, which means yes, cling to, chase after, and it's often used of man's search for God. In Deuteronomy, when God says you must love me, you must cling to me, in chapter 10, verse 20, it says you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you should hold fast and take oaths in his name. That clinging to of God is the same word that it means clinging to of a husband or wife. There's this, this, this passion for each other. You might say this. Marriage is seen as a pursuit of each other in the biblical writer's witness. It's like this, this one relationship that comes after the relationship with God that is distinct, that is important. I love how movies get to reflect some of this. One of my favorites is this movie, Big Fish. The, the son in this movie is, is suspicious that at some point his father had an affair, and so he goes to confront the woman he's suspicious of him having the affair with and, and starts to make these accusations. And, and her response is really, uh, I wish. If only he would have been willing to do that, but for whatever reason, he doesn't. And the son's response is, this doesn't make sense. Like, how can all of this be? And and this is her reply. No, it's logical if you think like your father. See, to him, there's only two women, your mother and everyone else. Somewhere the, the biblical writers have this same view of marriage. There's this deep passion, two for the other, that nothing can break. In fact... Marriage is seen as a pursuit of each other, which can get in the way of pursuit of God, that core relationship. Somewhere in this picture of circles, something seems to pull us from the center to the outside of the circle. It pulls us from relationship with God, and it pulls us out towards a focus on the person that we're married to. And Paul, in the passage we read last week, he even reflects on this a little a, man, a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. A married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. In Paul's mind, that, that core has to, has to stay the same. And Jesus controversially says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. It's one of those things that I'd like to wave a wand and say, Jesus, don't say that. Uh, 
I don't like that. I want you to say something different, and yet it's there, and it's in the text. Somewhere, relationships are hard work because life is constantly changing, and we keep, we keep adding other relationships. And so we've wrestled with this movement from this core where it says God is the primary relationship into this expanding circle, which says now there's a union with a spouse, and now we move to this one, because I would suggest relationships are hard work because life is constantly changing, and no change has the impact of children. No change has the impact of children. Now, if you're in a place in life where you're saying, I would love to have children, and that hasn't been your journey, then, then my heart certainly aches for you. But we have a society as well that constantly says there's things to achieve and things to do, and this is our natural progression from marriage to we've got to have children. Yes, there's a biological thing in play, but there is always this sense of this will give me everything I ever want. And it's true that children are a gift from the Lord. They are a wonderful gift. They are a beautiful addition to a family. Will they solve all the problems? Will they give you everything you ever thought you wanted? Well, no, if that core relationship always has to be God. No, they won't. But they are this beautiful gift. One of the tensions I have with the Bible is this. It seems to be light on concreting parent advice. I want it to say more. I want it to give me more tips. I want it to tell me how to be a good father. I want it to control all of that for me. In actual fact, this is about as concrete as it gets. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, try having that argument with a five-year-old. Like, what do you do with that? You will obey me. Uh, Hasn't worked so far. So that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life in the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. But what about when your very presence is exasperating? When you get to that teenage years, are you supposed to just leave? It's, it seems like it sticks to this like, higher ethical advice that seems to be centered around the core relationship is God, the next relationship is spouse, the third relationship, if that happens, is kids. And yet we wrestle, for those of us that have been down this journey or are on this journey right now, with this idea. Children bring change. They just do. They change what a marriage looks like. And maybe nothing illustrates that as well as this real. One more time, just in case you didn't catch it. <laughs> There's this couple and the guy's looking at the girl and the girl's looking at the guy and it's all kind of cute and it's all kind of hopeful. And then there's this moment where the toddler comes into view and it's like, oh, Nope, nothing happening here, folks. Nothing to see. There's this concentric circles that take shape and there's God and then the spouse. And then you add this third circle, this kids thing. And then it seems like, the, according to the biblical writers, everything else is outside of that circle. These relationships become the priority. There is God and then there is spouse and then there is kids. But maybe you're already, if you've been down this journey, you've already started to see some of the tension and we'll run through this 
fairly quick, but men and women see parenting differently. And that's some of the challenge of figuring out how to make this journey together. But what I want you to see for just a second is how we approach this differently, but with similar struggles on the surface. Yes, they, they show themselves in different ways, but in reality, our struggles, they're somewhat similar. So let's take women first and then men. And of course, when I speak for women, yes, I've had conversations with my wife and other women, but I can't experience what that is like. But, but it seems like in our current culture, when you are a mother, you're wrestling perhaps, firstly, with guilt. With this idea that we live in a society that says to moms, oh, you should stay at home with your kids. Oh, no, you should go to work. Oh, no, you should stay at home with your kids. Oh, no, you should work. Oh, no, you should stay at home with your kids. And there's almost like an unwinnableness there that you might call mom guilt or something like that. There's this sense of like, oh, I have to do everything. And, and, and of course, you can't. Perhaps what's true of all our relationships as we look across the whole spectrum of relationships is, is we might say that we want to be as good at relationships as we can, but we can't be as good at relationships as we want to be. It feels like somewhere there's a deficit. And so, so it feels like in this society, one of the things we're presented with is, is this idea of, of mom guilt. Uh, you're not enough, which, which leads to perhaps number two, which is, is insufficiency is I'm not everything my child wants me to be. And, 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 and are, they, are they developing, are they growing fast enough? There's that moment, perhaps for both genders, but perhaps especially for a mother of, they haven't rolled over yet. Should they have rolled over now? They haven't started walking yet. Should they have started walking now? And that can continue and can continue and continue. And, and someone once said that signing up to have children was this, it was signing up to be worried for the rest of your life because there's, there's always another phase to worry about if they're developing well enough. There's this sense of, I've had this child, but does it have my nose? And even worse, does it have my, parent, my, my dad's nose? Like that, that, that would be even worse. There's this, there's this whole sense of like, oh, do I add up? Am I sufficient? And then finally, I'm gonna tread carefully on this one, but I'm gonna tread on the same subject for guys. There's, there's this one. There's the change that goes along with having kids, that is both perhaps a benefit and a curse. Perhaps it's, it's necessary and gives this focus on this child is the thing right now, and I am here to nurture it. I am here to make sure it lives, and, and as a mother, you'll be responsible for that living in a way that nobody else is, because you have the thing that gives life. There's these three things that seem to take shape, and then there's how guys see parenting which is just a little bit different, and yet, I think is shaped a little bit by three things. It's shaped by guilt, by a sense of emotion or lack of emotion. The writer Michael Lewis once said this, there was this persistent and disturbing gap between what I was meant to feel and what I actually felt. Because while generally, and I'm gonna speak generally because that's why there's generalisms, because they're generally true, but, but generally, for women, love is, is it's, it's maternal instinct. And for guys, it's a learnt behavior. For women, it's an instinct. 
For guys, it's a learnt behavior. You're presented with this thing and told that you're somewhat connected to it and somewhat responsible for it, and yet the feelings don't always match up, and so there's this sense of guilt of like, I just don't love this thing in the way that I'm supposed to love it. There's this awareness, perhaps, that, that the mother loves it so much better than you do in that season, which perhaps leads to insufficiency perhaps leads to insufficiency. That Michael Lewis quote I read you goes on to say this. Your wife goes into labor and you go into waiting because after all, the American father of a baby is just a second string mother. It's just a second string mother. How many of you guys out there have been out with a baby and you've had someone ask you if you're babysitting today? It's just a, a perception of like how fathers are perceived uh, perhaps in this world. There's an insufficiency that maybe we're not actually necessary to this baby's life at all right now. So there's guilt and then there's insufficiency. Denzel Washington once said this, a man's first true love is his mother and a mother's last true love is her son. And there's this potential where the husband, the dad can just feel like a, a third leg of that stool, perhaps a little bit unnecessary. And then a final one that might be in play, there's hormones because his haven't changed. And so all of the same desires he had when the kid was born, he still has. And doesn't that cause something of a conundrum? And even deeper under the surface of that, there's this psychological truth that a woman who has a baby goes through a hormone change that actually makes her mature. And guys don't have that hormone change. So they don't change. And so something is at whack there, and something seems to take place that, that just because of how our natures are wired, just like with the movement from God to spouse, there's something that seems to pull us as far as we'll allow it to the edge of the circle. Perhaps, again, generalizing, perhaps for a woman that becomes a focus on the kids, and perhaps for a dad it becomes a focus on anything else because he can control some of the anything else, but really in the other circles he's in a realm he doesn't really understand at all. Because of some of this tension in play, what I would suggest is this. Uh, nothing threatens a marriage like children. Nothing threatens a marriage like children. In the best possible way, it changes so much. According to uh, a study of 90 studies of 31,000 married people, the drop in marital satisfaction after the first baby's birth is a staggering 42% larger amongst the current generation of parents than their predecessors. Studies also suggest that one-third to one-half of new parent couples experience as much marital distress as couples already in therapy for marital difficulties. There is so much that society expects, and so having children causes a flux in a relationship. Is it any wonder that in the wonderful movie Hook, Dustin Hoffman's character teases the children and attempts them to win them over to his side by sharing this lie with them? Before you were born, your parents would stay up all night together just to see the sunrise. Before you were born, they were happier. They were free. There's this, there's this kernel of truth to it, right? They were free. They could do whatever they wanted. It doesn't change the fact that children are the most beautiful gift that enrich life, that gives so much and creates so much joy. 
that doesn't take away the truth that there was a freedom to doing whatever you wanted that was present. It doesn't change some of that conundrum. Dave Willis says this, I've seen too many marriages fall apart because two well-meaning people put so much focus on their kids that they forgot to keep investing in their marriage. Some couples reduce the relationship to a partnership in co-parenting, and when the kids finally grow up, they discover that they have created an empty nest and an empty marriage. An empty nest and an empty marriage. There is something about our nature that pulls us from the center. It pulls us from a core of God is this primary relationship to, to marriage is this gift of you are one flesh to this third one of children. This is true whether it's a blended family. This is true whether it's adopted kids. This is true whether it's biological kids. Just whatever the situation is, this seems to be a risk. This seems to happen. Nothing threatens a marriage like children. It seems like by nature we are wired to be pulled out of center towards everything else. That's what we do. I would suggest that this centrifugal force, this thing that pulls us out from center, I would say it's the default, unless you do something about it, unless I do something about it. I would say it's just what happens. Perhaps it's a reflection of what Jesus says when he says this in Mark chapter 4. The seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. He never, never judges the stuff. He never says it's good or bad. What he says is this, life has a way of pulling you from the center. Life pulls you from this relationship with God into the goodness of marriage. Pulls you from the goodness of marriage into the, 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 the wonderfulness of having children and it pulls you beyond that potentially into just the everything else, just the surviving. By nature, we seem to move away from these core relationships and just, just survive, just exist. So if the Bible is right, all of these different writers within it are right and this core relationship is God and this next relationship is spouse and this third relationship with kids and then there's everything else afterwards, what do we do? How do we get back towards center? How do we turn that, that centrifugal force to what you'd call a centripetal force, which actually moves the arrow inwards that helps us process some of the ways we've got out of alignment with how God describes relationships? I would suggest that centrifugal is default. If you want to live this other way, this centripetal way, I'd suggest it's decision that there's actually some pragmatic things that you have to choose to do. And again, what one of the, my frustrations is, uh, Scripture doesn't give us a lot of passages that say, do this. What it does do wonderfully is paint this picture of priority of relationships and how they're supposed to function. And what I'll do is give you some pragmatic advice that I think has been helpful to me. If you find yourself on the very outside, how do you move towards your kids? How do you take that first step towards moving the arrow inwards? If work has become an obsession, if anything else has become the focus, like, how do you do that? And the first thing I'd, I'd say is this, you schedule what's important. One of the things that the Bible does say is it does say that, that your responsibility is raising your kids in the way of Jesus. 
When I was a youth pastor, I'd have all of these parents that would be very excited that I was there, that I was present in the church, and they would come to me and they would say things like this, well, now you're here, my kids will really get discipled in the way of Jesus. And I would say, that's not my job. That's your job. I have no interest in taking it from you. Like that, that, would be, that would be terrible, but this is what you're called to do. Now, I can help. I can be involved, but if you think your kids are great because they're in a good kids' ministry, which we have, if you think they're good because they're in a youth ministry, because, yeah, that's great because we have it, it's not the truth. It's, it's you, and it's me. Our kids are our responsibility and, and our close community around us. If you don't schedule this, my suspicion is it doesn't really happen if you don't make it a priority. And what I've learned about scheduling is this, that there's type A people out there, and that's some of you. And there's type B people out there, and some of you. And some of you type A people, you, you schedule everything. And I'm going to keep saying schedule, even though some of you don't like it. <laughs> I can see your faces, so you're just saying schedule. I suppose you took your schedule to work as well with you, didn't you? <laughs> people. <sighs> I don't know what to do. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to try saying schedule. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. So, some, of you, some of you type 8 people, you, you schedule everything. You put everything on there. And then some of you type B people will say, you don't schedule anything. Now, here's what I found. Even though there are type B people out there that say they don't schedule anything, they always have something that's on their schedule. And it's usually stupid, like a video game release or something like that, but there's, there's something on there. And the truth is that what you schedule is what you value. The stuff that you put down is the stuff that actually matters to you. If you wanna to move towards your kids, schedule what's important. Make sure it's there and make sure you're involved in it. But also choose to be interested in what they're interested in. One of the best pieces of parenting advice as a dad I got was from a friend. Uh, it was a, a guy who was the dad of a girl that worked with me. And Brie was getting married and I was at her wedding and Brie and her dad just had this wonderful relationship. I always just thought it was just, just brilliant how connected they still were even in her 20s. And I, I sat down with him and he's very successful, great businessman, great, uh, great husband and all of these different things. And I, I said, how did you do it? How did you stay so connected? And he said to me, simple, I always just got interested in what she was interested in. And that cost at times, and he told me this story about them going on vacation every year, and, and he said the first thing we would do is we would go and we'd play putt-putt together. And then there came this year when she turned about 14 where I said to her, are you ready to go play putt-putt? And he, she said, well, I just met some kids down in the foyer and they want to go play capture the flag. So I was thinking I might do that. And he said, I had this choice. I could either hold on to her or I could let her go. And so at that moment, I said to her, you know what? You're going to have so much fun playing capture the flag. You go and have a blast and we can play putt-putt anytime. He said, I walked into the hotel room and burst into tears. And my wife came alongside me and said, no, come on, you can, you can deal with this moment. But he said that his adventure and getting interested in what she was interested in meant that the first time that she broke up with a boyfriend, he role-played what she was going to say and why she needed to say it. She, he entered in to what was important in her life. And sometimes I think, especially as dads, we wait for our kids to get interesting. And yet our job is perhaps to become interested in them. 
learn to say no to now because there'll always be a now in life. And sometimes you just have to say no to the crisis that seems to be constantly developing. How do you move towards your spouse? Supposing your life is your kids and that seems to be everything that you've got going on right now. That seems to take all your focus and the language co-parenting as friends seems to resonate just a little bit. What do you do? Well, maybe again you schedule what's important. Here's some things that it's okay to schedule that it doesn't make them unromantic. You can schedule date nights. You can schedule anniversaries, chores, parent-only vacations. You can schedule sex. You can add anything that you want on there to help control this crazy mess that is life and keep you interacting with each other. Claudia Arp says this, your kids will wait while you grab a few moments to build your marriage, but your marriage won't wait until your kids grow up. Won't wait till your kids grow up. Schedule what's important. Choose to be a team. One of the counselors Laura and I worked with for a while said this to us in this moment where we were going through this intense part of life. He said, the real question is that I have for you is can you guys be a team in this difficult situation? Can you keep that first union, that marriage thing, can you keep that as the centerpiece? And then this one, say no to blame because it can be really easy to find the first person to blame everything else on. And it's rarely true that it's all the other person. And then finally, how do you move towards God? How do you move to that central relationship? You catching a pattern here? You schedule what's important. Because when life is busy, when there's always a rush, unless time with God is on that schedule, the reality is it's the first thing that has the opportunity to go because God is not in a physical way knocking on your door saying, hey, can I have some attention here, please? This is Psalm 63. I've recommended it before as a thing to read every day, and I'm going to keep recommending it till you all do it. But it says this, you God and my God, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. It's this picture of what it is to move longingly towards that center relationship that has the opportunity to define every other relationship. Choose to read it every day. Charles Spurgeon once said, this is a psalm every Christian should read every single morning of every single day. And as you move towards God, choose to be listening because it's really easy when you're busy to spend your time with God as, as a whining session about how, how terrible everything is and how much you're struggling. But, but maybe there's this moment where you turn a corner and say, God, do you have anything to say to me right now? I'm here in a place needing your wisdom and ready to listen. And then wherever you are in terms of relationships, this final one, say no to shame. Maybe you caught the picture of some of the songs that we sang today. A lot of them reflected on this idea of, of shame. And I would say that there's no place for shame in relationship with God. If you're here struggling with parenting, if you're here struggling with a marriage, if you've been through brokenness, if you're experiencing right now, what he's not here doing is saying, I'm so ashamed of you. You're such a failure. What he's doing is that picture of that song that was the father's heart that says, I'm here welcoming you home with every step. The band Mumford and Sons once said in the lyric, it's not the long walk home that will heal my heart. 
It's the welcome I receive with every start. This God seems to constantly welcome in those that are wrestling and those that are struggling without shame, but with open arms. Centrifugal seems to be the default. If we let it, life will constantly pull us out to relationships on the periphery. Centripetal seems like it's a decision. Seems like it's a matter of saying, this is how I want to live. It seems like it's a matter of saying, this seems to be the way Jesus paints for me to live, and I'm going to follow him even when it seems difficult to do. Perhaps you've heard over the years this phrase, uh, you, you need to take time for this. You need to take time for your marriage. You need to take time for your relationship with God. You need to take time for any different relationship. What, what I would suggest is you can't take time unless you make time. And that actually starts with you and me. And there's a final little aside before Aaron leads us in worship. Perhaps you're here and, and your thought is, do you know what? I've moved through most of this. I've moved beyond parenting phase. Like it feels like my kids are grown up. It's less intense. Maybe your marriage is great and it's the second priority and God is first and all is well. And you're in that zone where you're like, Just, everything's good right now. What does this message have for you? One friend of mine once said when I asked him about grandparenting, I said, how was it? And he said, if I'd known how good being a grandparent was, I'd have skipped right to it. There was this natural movement. But somewhere, perhaps, the challenging invitation to you is this. Who can you help to make time? Who can you help to make time? Laura and I, for the first three or four years, we had kids over the age of one at least. We got to go and head to California for four or five days, just the two of us. Sometimes we did that because our parents were generous with their time and we were so appreciative. But there was one time at least where her parents said, well, we're actually away that week too. There's nothing we can do. And so two or three people in the church got together and said, we're going to make this trip happen for you. So they took our kids for a couple of nights each and they passed them around, different people that we trusted. And Laura and I spent our week in California that we usually spent just working on the, the art of being married. Perhaps there's grandkids that you have that you want to help your kids be the best parents they can be and be the best husband and wife they can be. Perhaps there's a couple in the church that you've been praying for and you want to help them do that. Perhaps it's just as simple as we have a kids' ministry that could desperately use some extra teachers. And you can jump in. Kathy's actually got a table outside this week, and you can have a conversation with her and say, I would love to help create space for a husband and wife to come and sit and learn what it is to follow in the way of Jesus together. There's actually really simple things that you might be able to do in the season of life you're in. But wherever we are, every single one of us Seems like scripture's call is this. Don't let kids be the number one priority. Don't let marriage be the number one priority. The call to the center is this relationship with God. Keep moving towards him. And it seems like other things fall into place. Let's pray. Jesus, on this day, we've talked about some of the challenges of parenting. In some ways, it seems like a good Mother's Day conversation. In some ways, it seems like a weird Mother's Day conversation. Thank you that you love families. And children are a gift. And so every single child that's here today is this beautiful gift to a family. And we get to experience the joy of that. 
And I know personally every single one of the four of my kids are just a joy in my life. And yet they're not supposed to be the bedrock. They're not supposed to be the absolute core. Beyond them, there's this person that if we're married, we chose to say we're going to be one flesh with. We chose to create this unique bond with. And even beyond that, there's you, who sustains all life, from whom we can't be removed without death. Because you spoke to yourself, and you made us, and you sustain and give life to us. So God, for each of us that find it so easy to move to the outside of the circle, helps to do what is needed to move back inwards. Challenge us, help us to have hard conversations, help us to be honest about our needs, to rely on you and your goodness. Help us to do that without shame and guilt. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.